You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Uh, by the way, welcome back to Hannah Berge, who's producing today because uh, our, our lovely Sam Pope is producing another show to cover for a colleague. So welcome back, Hannah. Chris and I are delighted to have the family back together. I know our, our other producer in Toronto, Donnie, who now produces the Drive Show for News Talk 1010, called in. Like, the family's back together. So welcome back. And, and a special shout out to um, Hannah's mom and grandmother, who are big fans of the show. So Hannah, welcome back for the day or maybe more. We, don't you love an opportunity to work with an, a colleague that you loved working with, but they've been promoted, they've, they've moved on, but they're back? So it's great. So that was a special thing. Um, we got a great show for you today, and, and uh, it is wonderful to share it with Hannah and to share it with you. Um, here's what we're going to do today. As usual, there is the requisite Evan Solomon show, Feet to the Fire, where we take a politician or a person in power and we hold them accountable for what we think are claims that they cannot justify. Today, we are going to do it with the Environment Minister, Stephen Guilbeault who announced his plan to get to the Paris Climate Accords emissions plan targets by 2030, which will include reductions of 42% for the oil and gas sector. But can he really do it when we discovered, as you heard on this program yesterday, from Michael Bernstein from Sustainable Prosperity, who told us, well, it's kind of interesting that the government is predicting that they're going to cut emissions by 42% in the oil sector while increasing the barrels per day of crude oil to 5.5 million. So I'm going to put that to the um, environment minister. And then the environment minister is going to say, well, don't worry, you know, like the the carbon price, which is going up on April 1st, don't worry, the rebates make this so everybody's actually making more money. And then you'll say, Evan, is that true? What about the parliamentary budget officer's report on that? And then I'll say to you, oh, don't worry about that. The parliamentary budget officer himself, who studied the liberal plan and said, actually, people are going to lose money overall He's going to be here to explain that to you. So don't worry. We're going to make sure that we've got a pair of feet and a nice little fire, and we'll hold those political feet to the fire as we do. So we'll do that today. That, that'll help. Um, we will have an opportunity for you to have your say on a new bill that's coming that may ban zoos or ban roadside zoos from having bears, lions, and exotic animals, elephants, gone. You're, do you want that to happen? We're going to have a good call-in segment on that. The War Room is here. And then we're going to end the show today with a Quebec woman who's now in Africa, in Namibia. And she's got um, three kids. And three of her kids, she's got four kids, but they've got a rare genetic condition. And they will, over time, lose their sight. All three of her children are going to go blind. And so what she's done is she's taken all her kids out of school and she's going to tour them of the, on the, of the entire world. They're taking a year to tour the world so their kids can see the world before they lose their sight. How incredible is that? They're going to actually see what it's like out there in the world before they lose their sight. It's heartbreaking, but Edith is going to join us. But we begin with another form of power. 
the power of the church. As you know, well, the prime minister today is going to visit a First Nation where they've uncovered more than 90 unmarked graves. And that's important because the discovery or the recovery of the unmarked graves at various residential institutions finally was enough for the Catholic Church to say, you know what, we'd like a delegation of indigenous leaders to come, Métis, Inuit, and indigenous leaders to come to the Vatican and have an audience with the Pope. And the Pope may apologize. The Pope is interested in visiting Canada. But I think the power dynamic is all wrong. And something happened yesterday that I can't get out of my mind. I just can't. Okay? I spoke, and I'm going to play this conversation coming up. I spoke with the Archbishop, Donald Dolan, who was an organizer of the trip. He's the Regina Archbishop, and he's in Rome. And I spoke to him yesterday, and I asked, I mean, if if you think about it, wouldn't you think that after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, thousands of pages, you know the story about what happened in the residential schools, institutions. There's unmarked graves. The bishops here have apologized, but the Pope has never apologized. Pope Benedict said he expressed sorrow privately, but call to action number 58 of the Truth and Reconciliation at least demands an apology. But this is really what's happened is the Pope has called Indigenous leaders to have this visit. He has not confirmed he will apologize. Why keep them in suspense? I don't know. You know the answer. You don't need any more learning. We know the crime has been committed. And now we don't know if the Pope on Friday is going to apologize. We don't know if the Pope's going to confirm a visit. We don't know if the Pope's going to come to Canada and apologize. We don't know if the Pope is going to release all the, the archives so people can find justice about their abused and deceased loved ones. We don't know if the Pope is going to return a father who's been accused of horrific sex crimes um, and abuse crimes in Canada, but as a French national, we don't have an extradition treaty there, should send that priest home. We don't know if that's going to happen. We don't, there's hundreds and there's thousands of artifacts that, of indigenous artifacts that the Vatican has that indigenous leaders have called to be returned, and the, we don't know if those are going to be returned at all. So imagine the very perpetrators of the crime, the church, They've admitted it. I'm not saying anything editorial. The church admitted that they're culpable for this crime. They've apologized. They ran the schools. They know it. They won't. No official apology yet. Holding people in suspense. No compensation. No return of artifacts. No admission that we're going to open all the records. And now lest you think that there's a precedent. Remember. In 2006, the church was part of the Indian Residential School Survivor Agreement. And all the churches who ran the schools, but 75% run by the Catholic Church, they're supposed to have raised $25 million to compensate. But did the church raise that? No. The Catholic Church, the only church that didn't actually raise the funds they were committed to do, they only raised $3.7 million. And then they closed the file. Then they said, oh, we... we we actually provided $28 million in in-kind service, but survivors were furious about that. 
because those in-kind service were like $600,000 from the Roman Episcopal Corporation of James Bay for community work and ministering. Presence of pastors. That's not in-kind work. Now there's another $30 million they're committed to raising. Why won't the church just give that money? And here's the power, why the power dynamic is wrong. Look, the church clearly would like to see this as a religious problem, a problem of absolution and sin. And it may well be that. I'm not qualified to talk about that. That's religious work. And I think indigenous leaders are, are meeting the Pope on those terms. But this is not, as the survivors of sexual abuse learned in the church, this is not a religious issue of sin and forgiveness. This is a criminal issue of crime, punishment, and justice. This is not about just saying sorry, although that's a call to action. This is about crime that we're committed and punishment and justice. This should not be a religious context. That's an internal matter. It should be a legal issue. The church would like this to be about sin and absolution. Why? Because the church can then absolve itself. But this is actually about justice and a crime committed and crimes committed. And it should be a legal issue, not a religious one. So what I'm going to do is take a break. And I want you to hear my conversation with Archbishop Donald Bolin, who's in Rome. And I ask him about the documents, about the artifacts, about the apology, and why the long wait. As this story changes, we react. This is The Evan Solomon Show. So today, Justin Trudeau is in Williams Lake, B.C., talking to survivors of the residential institution there. Um, They discovered or recovered 93 unmarked grave of children who were in the St. Joseph's Mission Residential School, which operated between 1886 and 1981, since demolished. The the recovery of these mass graves has led, finally, to this remarkable delegation of Inuit, Métis, and Indigenous leaders who have gone to Rome to have these historic meetings with the Pope. And they're calling on the Church on a number of things. For a public apology, that's the Truth and Reconciliation Call to Action number 58, to return Indigenous artifacts being held at the Vatican Museum, which they actually got to see yesterday. Will they be returned? They also want compensation from the church. They want records turned over. Well, I got an opportunity to speak to the Regina Archbishop Donald Bolan, one of the five archbishops in Rome, along with the Inuit Métis and First Nations delegations. Will the Pope issue an apology? I wanted to know. Why has he hasn't he already said he will apologize? Why why keep the indigenous leaders in suspense? Why not do what the Truth and Reconciliation Task Force has asked for? I think that there's been a clear request uh, for Pope Francis to offer an apology for abuses suffered and the Catholic Church's involvement in residential schools. Uh, many of the delegates have been saying they want to make sure that the apology takes place on Canadian soil. So, I mean, the Pope is going to be speaking on Friday morning, and uh, he's right now he's very much in listening mode. Uh, the first two meetings uh, with the 
uh, Métis and Inuit delegates have already happened, those private meetings. And they have shared very deeply uh, with him uh, experiences in both instances of residential schools and of colonization, uh, negative impacts of those. And he certainly heard them and responded emotionally and pastorally. So uh, what he's going to say on Friday morning, we'll see. And, uh, of course, he is planning now to come to Canada. Uh, so uh, what he's going to say here and what he's going to say there uh, remains to be seen. But, but why does it remain to be seen? I guess that's my question. I understand respectfully that the Pope is listening, but mm-hmm. I'm sure you and, and I'm sure the Holy Father and I'm sure the bishops and the, and the cardinals have all read the Truth and Reconciliation Report, thousands of pages of testimony. It's not mm-hmm. as if this, these crimes are new. Um, why keep Indigenous leaders, Canadians, in suspense as to if he will apologize, where he will apologize? Why not say he knows the crimes, the Church is aware of what happened, the, the, the Holy Father, the Pope, will be apologizing publicly as asked. There will be compensation. There will be a release of documents. Why wait? What is the suspense? What more does the church need to know? I mean, it's not a matter of suspense. Uh, And the Pope is not trying to keep people in suspense. I mean, the Pope has clearly indicated to the Canadian bishops, uh, you need to take a lead here. Uh, You need to take responsibility. Uh, And that's a message that we've heard loud and clear from him. So, uh, you know, for instance, I have offered an apology both at the TRC national event in Saskatoon on behalf of Saskatchewan bishops and in several other contexts. Uh, when I've had meetings at uh, Kawas's First Nation, at Kisiku's First Nation, and in individual encounters, many bishops have done so, as have religious communities. Right. Uh, and then in September at the, at the plenary of the Canadian Bishops Conference, the Canadian bishops collectively offered an unequivocal apology for, for the waves of suffering which Indigenous people experienced in residential schools and the various kinds of abuses which were, were suffered. So there's, there's a desire also from Indigenous peoples that Pope Francis directly engage with that question. And therefore, we facilitated this first encounter uh, where he can hear directly from them and engage in a very personal way. Pope Francis has stressed throughout his pontificate the importance of dialogue and encounter. Um, So he's asked us as Canadian bishops to engage in that dialogue and have those encounters to get to know survivors, to listen to their stories. And now he's having that experience directly. Uh, I understand. You, the Truth and Reconciliation doesn't have a call to dialogue. They, they literally are called a call to action, call to Action 58. It's an action. They want the, the, the Pope to apologize. The delegates went on a private tour of the Vatican Museum. They house indigenous artifacts that members of the delegation have called on the Vatican to return. His, some historians have said they were stolen. Will the Catholic Church commit to returning those artifacts? And will the Catholic Church also commit to turning over all the archives related to the residential schools? So, first of all, regarding the artifacts, uh, I think we had a very good visit there this morning. And I think that, the, you know, you're putting words in the delegates' mouth that I'm not hearing from the delegates. What I'm hearing from them is they want to enter deeply into a conversation. Uh, if you speak to uh, the president of the ITK, uh, he wants to enter into dialogue about what happens with those artifacts. If you speak to uh, President Cassidy Caron from the MNC, right? 
She wants to learn more. They want to hear what's there. They want to hear the history of how it got there. And then they want to have a conversation and a discernment about what to do. Uh, I, I, just sir, can, can I just say one, archives, Archbishop, yeah. if I may, and, and respectfully, yeah. I, I know you think I'm putting words into the delegate's mouth. I'm going to quote you the words of the very people who met with the Pope, Métis National Council President Cassidy Caron, told CTV right. News, what they, the Catholic Church, needs now to recognize, they hold things of ours that tell our story. These are our priceless cultural works, and they do need to come home. Being minutes back from that trip, my first reaction is I'm disappointed. We did not make any progress there. They are still there for three more days until the general audience and have a number of meetings set up. Hopefully we can follow up with the director of the museum and start to carve out the pathway to identify our items, identify the people who are right to tell those stories and bring those items home. Archbishop, they want those home. That's their words, not mine. I'm hearing that meetings are happening and discussion is happening in that regard. And I'm also hearing that there's a desire to know the stories behind how those artifacts got there. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, some of those artifacts were presented as gifts to popes. And, I mean, the people I was sitting with at supper saying, we need to know that story, right? There's a spiritual dimension to gift giving. And, and that can't be lost. Uh, so, I mean, that's a conversation underway. Right. I, I'm just I'm listening to the words of the Métis Council who said they're, they're ours. And, okay, but I, you know, we're not going to solve uh, that, but, but I'm just saying that they together, clearly right? want the home. Uh, yeah, great. Right. With all due respect, I mean, take two lines from an interview or take a process where we're walking together to try to address those issues. I'm, I'm, I mean, here, we're having those conversations. It's good that we're having those conversations. Um, <clears throat> my conversation with the Archbishop went on. I, I want to play, though. I know he said... I'm putting words into the mouths of delegates, and he didn't hear that on the artifacts. Let me just play you what he quoted President Cassidy Caron. It was his words. He said, I spoke, well, this is what President Cassidy Caron, president of the Métis National Council, here's what she said, just so you know. I'm not putting words in her mouth. These are literally her words. I am quite disappointed, and we did not make any progress there, but we are still here for uh, three more days until the general audience on Friday, and hopefully we can follow up with the director of the museum and actually start to carve out that pathway to identify our items, identify the people who are right to tell those stories, and identify a pathway to bring those items home. Bring those items home. So... I, I just, I, I don't understand. The archbishop is there. And respectfully, he says, well, you know, we're in a dialogue. I, I, I'm, they don't want them home. They want to discuss it. They want them home. You just got to listen to what they're saying. These are the leaders who met with the Pope. They want the artifacts home. They want the records. They want the compensation. And they want a public apology. So far, they've got nothing. We'll see. Um, now, I told you I'm going to hold the uh, feet to the fire of Canada's environment minister, Stephen Gilboam, who finally released the eight-year plan to achieve their climate targets. Pardon me. I'm still coughing from COVID, folks. Still still got it. So the, the environment minister is on the other side of a break. Then the parliamentary budget officer who questions his entire premise follows up. You got it all.
talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. So you got the federal budget coming up on April 7th, next Thursday, and you're going to find out how they're going to spend $9 billion on the environment because the liberals finally released their ambitious climate plan yesterday to reduce the country's emissions by 2030. And I spoke to the environment minister, Stephen Gilbeau, and, you know, I said to him, look, you have set up eight years to achieve 40 to 45 percent um, reduction below 25, uh, 2005 levels for the oil and gas sector, uh, which is the biggest emitter. Uh, they actually have a 42 percent. And I know there's nine billion dollars in home retrofits and I know you're going to do uh, transit and you, there's going to be EV vehicles. There's lots in here, but that's the big Megillah. That's the whole thing. And yet crude oil production in your own report is predicted to increase by 2030 to 5.5 million barrels a day produced here in Canada. That's basically over the 4.1 million a day that we produce today. So how do you increase oil production in such a massive way? And how can you really plausibly decrease emissions by 2030? How does that make sense? Well, Basically, our, our approach to the oil and gas sector is based on the commitments that all of the major oil companies have made to be carbon neutral, we say net zero by, by 2050. And, and what we've done over the last few months is, is work with them uh, to see how we, we get there by, by 2050 and certainly start putting a framework in place so that we, we start decarbonizing the, the sector by, by 2030, which is why during the last election campaign, uh, we made a commitment to put a cap on the emissions uh, of, uh, of the sector, but, but not of production. And in fact, our today's, today's plan is based on um, projections that were done for example, by the Canadian Energy Regulator that forecasts an increase in, in, in production between now and 2030. We took, we took that, an, that analysis in and, and work with the sector, work with, with the provinces, work with experts as well to see what was possible in terms of, of emission reduction from, from, from that sector. It's an ambitious, it's an ambitious goal for, for sure. And, and remember just, that these are projections for... Because you got to get carbon capture and storage, which is, I, I know we do that already, but, but, you know, it's still a very expensive and, as you know, pretty early stage technology. But we've got to increase oil sands production, crude, total crude oil production to 5.5 million barrels a day by 2030 and still reduce emissions. And by the way, the, the gas sector is the same by 42 percent. It seems to me that's going to be the toughest nut to crack. Are you concerned about that? It, again, it's ambitious, and, and and you know what, Evan? When I when I meet with with the CEOs of these oil companies, uh, the one thing that they've all said to me is, "Let's work together to make that happen." When when we started talking about the oil and gas cap, that was the message I got in in Calgary, and and in subsequent meetings I've had with them, "Let's work together to to, to make this happen." Calgary has the highest concentration of engineers of any cities in, in, in the country, uh, and probably one of the highest in, in, in G7 countries, there's a lot of know-how. There's a lot, of, there's a lot of, of good potential, and we want to tap into that potential to make it happen. Okay, um, that's the oil and gas. The second biggest emitter is transport, and you mentioned that the transition to electric vehicles. How fast will that happen? Because you know there's Canadians watching now 
who know April 1st, the price of carbon in the four provinces with the backstop goes from uh, 40 bucks to 50 bucks a ton. People are worried about the, the highest rates of inflation in 30 years. And now you're going to target the transportation section. What do you say to Canadians who are saying, you're killing me, the, the price of gas is killing me, inflation's killing me, now you're going to add to that. What's your response? Well, a couple of things. Um, people should should remember that the increase in the price of gas has very little to do with carbon pricing in Canada. 95% of the increase uh, cost at the pump has to do with with the cost of crude oil going, the price of crude oil going up substantially because of the war in Ukraine and, and, and provincial taxes. That's 95% of the increase there. So carbon pricing only accounts for, for, for 5%. Uh, people should also remember that eight out of 10 households in Canada are better off. They receive more money from our carbon pricing system than, 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 than if the system wasn't there. And in terms of, uh, of electric vehicles, I mean, we're seeing in provinces like my own in Quebec and here where I am in British Columbia, 13, 14% of new vehicle sold right now are zero emission vehicles, are electric vehicles. But well, we don't um, have the infrastructure to support them, as you know. Which is why today we're at, we're investing another two billion dollars to deploy the infrastructure. We want to install at least twenty five thousand charging stations uh, across the country, and 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 I recognize that some provinces are ahead of others, which is why we have we have a, a sales target of twenty percent of of vehicles um, by twenty twenty six, sixty percent by twenty thirty, and a hundred percent by by twenty thirty five. So we're going at it progressively, deploying to, deploying infrastructures across. Across the country, investing with companies, uh, we've just in the last month hundreds of millions of dollars invested in Canada, creating thousands of jobs in battery technology in Quebec, in Ontario. Uh, we've invested in uh, in an auto plant in in Oakville, for example, to convert it to to, to 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 electric to electric vehicles. We're working with Ford, with a number of different companies. So that's how we get there, uh, Minister. Some are saying, look, this stuff's got to go on hold. The, the war in Ukraine um, has changed the need. We've got to uh, ship more fossil fuel energy like liquefied natural gas. Uh, we've got to ship more oil to displace the Russian energy supply for energy security. That, in fact, we've got to do more in the short and medium term uh, fossil fuel, not less. What is your answer to that? We want to help our, our European friends and colleagues, which is why uh, last week Minister Wilkinson uh, announced an, an increase in production uh, of equivalent to, to 300,000 barrels of, uh, of oil a day, uh, which will go through the U.S. and then and, and enter Europe. But you know, Heaven, what, what we hear from our European colleagues is that they want to double down on, on the green transition, and they want, they want more clean technologies. And, and Canada can certainly help, and they've asked for our help on that. We're one of the 10th largest producer of hydrogen in the world. They want to move to, to, to hydrogen. And to, to quote uh, the, the, the European president, um, she said, you know, the, the solution to our dependency to Russian oil and gas is to reduce our dependency right. to oil and gas, full okay. stop. Okay. And that's what, what, that's what, that's what the Europe is doing, and we're going to accompany them uh, in, in, on that journey. I, I know nuclear is mentioned in here, and, and I've seen it, but I just want your opinion. Do you consider nuclear energy green technology, sir? It's, it's a non-emitting technology. For, for, for sure, and we have to look at every available non-emitting right. technology to, 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 to get to, to our 2030 and, and to our 2050 goal. 
I got to leave it there. Uh, this is a big report, folks. It's uh, close to 300 pages, so it will take time to go through all of it. Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault, I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Evan. Okay, so one of the things that the Environment Minister said in that interview is eight out of 10 households will be better off because of the rebate, where the four provinces have the rebate. Well, there was a study by the Parliamentary Budget Officer on the federal carbon pricing under their, quote, healthy environment and a healthy economy. And the Parliamentary Budget Officer concluded this. Most households in provinces under the backstop, this is the four province, will see a net loss resulting from the federal carbon pricing under the plan. That is, household carbon costs will exceed the climate action incentive payment households. Well, wait a second. Didn't the environment minister just said 8 out of 10 households will be better off? Well, is that true? Now, it was true last year. We thought the calculations were, and I saw the calculations, look true. But then last week, in quietly, the parliamentary budget officer released another report. Now, his report is also controversial because if they're in the transition, are there going to be new jobs? But I thought, well, we should really let you not just take the minister's word for it. Why don't you get the independent officer of parliament, Eve Giroux, the very guy who analyzed their plan, the very guy who concluded, actually, you're not going to be making money on this. You're going to, it's going to cost you money. There's going to be a cost. How much? Well, guess what? The good news. He joins us live next. So what we've got is the environment minister making a claim and the very person, the independent officer of parliament, fact-checking that claim next because he's done an analysis. What does he find? Well, it's going to blow the doors off next. When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon. Well, the budget is coming up on April 7th, and a big line item will be the $9.1 billion that the Liberals promised to distribute in their climate emissions plan. But I just spoke to Stephen Guilbeault, the Environment Minister, as you heard. And one of the things he said is, I said, look, Are you concerned that on April 1st, the price of carbon goes up, the price of gas is up, inflation is at a, you know, 30-year high? And he said, no, I mean, look, the the rebate where four provinces who who have what's called the backstop, the four provinces like Ontario and Alberta and Manitoba and Saskatchewan, don't worry, everyone there can actually make more money with the rebate on carbon. Here's exactly what he said. People should also remember that eight out of 10 households in Canada are better off. They receive more money from our carbon pricing system than, 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 than if the system wasn't there. Eight out of 10 households are better off. Is that true? Well, the independent officer of parliament, the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, actually decided to study that claim. And last week he released a report called the Distributional Distributional Analysis of Federal Carbon Pricing Under a Healthy Environment and a Healthy Economy. That's what the liberals call it. And he found something very different. And the good news is he's here to talk about it. Yves Giroux, good to have you here. Uh, My pleasure. Okay, fact check time. Stephen Gilbo, 
the minister, people should also remember eight out of 10 households are now better off and receive more money from the carbon pricing system than if it wasn't there. True or false? Uh, I think the minister is right, but that's uh, unfortunately an incomplete answer. So if you look purely at the carbon tax paid by households, minus what they receive in rebate, that's true that about 80% of households will receive more in rebates than what they end up paying directly and indirectly. However, what that does not take into account is the fact that due to the imposition of a carbon tax, and it's increasing to $170 per ton by 2030, there'll be a reduction in economic activity compared to a scenario where there would not be any carbon tax. And once you take that into account, then most households will be worse off under a carbon tax regime compared to uh, a situation where there would not be any carbon tax. So the minister is right when you just look at the carbon tax paid versus the rebate, but it fails to take into consideration the broader economic impact, which will have uh, implications for labor income, for investment income, for example. So that's that's the, uh, the quick summary of the, uh, the the report we released last week. Speaking to Yves Giroux from the Parliamentary Budget Office, and he is the Parliamentary Budget Officer, quote, most households in provinces under the backstop will see a net loss resulting from the federal carbon pricing system. Uh, that is, a household carbon cost will exceed the climate action incentive payments. When does that happen? Like, at what, is there a tipping point where the benefits from the incentives actually become losses? It depends on household income. So uh, if you look at the current year, um, the, the, the rebates are still um, providing more benefits for about 40% of households. But the further you increase the carbon tax, the more the negative overall impacts uh, become widespread. So, for example, next year, um, those in the second quintile, so the bottom, like, between 0 and 20%. The bottom quintile, they still receive more, but those immediately before, uh, after, sorry, they're on the cusp of being um, not winners, not losers. But the further you move out into the future, then the cost on the economy and therefore on, on households becomes slightly more important with every year that passes. So um, when you take into account the global aspect of the economic impacts, then um, it, there's no real tipping point. It's gradually happening. It's gradually happening. Um, so, so it looks like higher income people will be losing more. That's the, that's the case as well, right? Yes, that's what we call a progressive impact because those with higher income will be paying more or suffering from larger losses. So it, it's not money out of pocket. It's mostly the economic impact. Uh, and it's more prevalent at higher income levels. Yeah, that's yeah, totally yeah. because you say by 2030, um, a household in Alberta that would be receiving 660 bucks uh, or paying $7,400, the net loss would be over $2,200. Yeah, that's a significant amount. And in Alberta, that's explained by the fact that it's a province where there's more reliance on fossil fuels, especially in the economic fabric of the province, notably uh, the oil and gas sector, which is very well known by now. So 
some have said, well, your report doesn't calculate economic growth because of green technologies, that maybe that could offset the losses. What's your sense of that? My sense is, my response to that is, that's totally true. That's absolutely accurate. We we don't take into account the potential economic benefits of green technologies because these technologies, uh, we already, some of them are known, for example, solar and wind power. But to get to a point where we would meet or even exceed the Paris target, uh, we would need to have very widespread adoption of these technologies, or even better, new technologies. And these are not known yet. So it's very difficult to factor in the benefits of something that is not yet known. And that's why we have not taken that into consideration. And frankly, between now and 2030, it doesn't leave much time for the adoption of these new technologies, at least not to the extent that it would be required to, uh, to reach these targets. Uh, it's more likely that the, there will be benefits for green technologies beyond 2030. But between now and 2030, it's pretty fast to adopt these technologies to the extent that we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Okay. Now, now you have been the subject. Of course, your report was a bit of a bombshell. And, and I just had the environment minister on. And conservatives have said that when Stephen Gilbo said to what he said to me, that eight out of 10 households in Canada are better off with the application of the carbon pricing then without it. And then uh, some conservatives have said that this is a, quote, lie. The price of carbon is worse than they thought. The PBO report, your re- I'm quoting, uh, this is Pierre Polyeva. Today's PBO report proves what Canadians already knew. This tax is costing them. And combined with just inflation, they can't take it anymore. That Stephen Gilbo is lying when he says eight out of ten households in Canada are better off with the application of the pricing. Is, is this an accurate portrayal of the true costs of the carbon price? Well, I provide reports and analysis to Canadians and parliamentarians so that they can have informed debates. I, we try our best here in the, in the office to do the best with the information we have. And we clearly explain our assumptions and our results, and we're available to all parliamentarians to explain how we arrived at the conclusions that we get. Um, That being said, our reports are available on our website for everybody to read, all those interested. And that's as much control as I have. Okay, but uh, Stephen, I just got 30 seconds, but is the minister right when he told me that? You're saying he's right on one sense, but it's incomplete. It's like it's the sin of omission, as it were. Well, he's right when you say when you compare only the carbon tax paid by households minus the rebate. But if you fail to include the economic impact, that's an incomplete picture. Uh, The PBO, Yves Giroux, you're the best. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. The War Room is next. Listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. I don't know. You know, I was away for a week, and I don't think there much news happened. A small kind of dealio between the Liberals and the NDP, a little childcare issue, uh, buying some F thirty five jets. I don't know the emissions plan with another nine billion dollars. A war. I don't know. Well, let's just see if anything actually happened. Let's bring in the war room. 
Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. Rugby star Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies, Tom Mulcair, CTV News political analyst, former NDP leader, and the guy who did a, as usual, magnificent job sitting in this chair, Zane Velgia, political campaign strategist, partner at Northweather. Uh, hello, Tim, Tom, and Zane. Did I miss anything? Nothing. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely nothing. It was hard to fill the show while you're away. I Just, mean, it seems <laughs> nothing happened, right? <laughs> Oh, goodness. Are what a we, wild week. It is a wild week. I think week. what you have to conclude, Evan, is that they save all this stuff for the week when you're going to be away. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it had been raining news. We had been in a news bomb, and I thought, okay, yeah. this is it. You know, we, we'd had the truckers, and we'd had the war, and we'd had all this stuff. And then it's like, okay, I'll take a small break, and then, you know, Justin Trudeau and Jugmeet Singh finally do this little deal. By the way, I, I kind of missed this, Tom, just real quick before we get to the, the, the environment stuff. But, Tom, uh, winners and losers in that deal, who, who, who is it? Oh, the big winner is Justin Trudeau. I mean, he he was denied a majority by the voters and he went out and bought himself one with taxpayers money and his deal with Jagmeet Singh. Mr. Singh might be able to point to a certain number of programs that come in thanks to him and thanks to the NDP's deal with the Liberals. But at the next election, the toughest question for him on the doorstep is going to be, but why should we vote against the Liberals? You've just Mm -hmm. been... You know, you've been propping them up for three and a half years. So that's going to be the toughest thing for him to answer. Yeah. And, and, and Tim, conservatives, you, you, I, we've all been around politics long enough to know that anybody can polish anything and make it like, yeah, this is perfect. Some conservatives are saying this is a nightmare. we got to wait three more years. And Justin Trudeau and others are saying, perfect. This is the best thing that's ever happened. We'll get all our ducks in order. I mean, my God, the spin. What, what's your take from the? Is this good or bad for the conservatives? Well, if I had the Bitcoin that Pierre Polyev has, uh, Evan, I bet <laughs> on it uh, being irrelevant in the longer term, in as much as I don't think it's going to last three years for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, I, I think it actually can be helpful to them because I think there will be an audience out there that um, is not going to be happy with the money spent, even though there will be some significant social programs that perhaps are achieved. I think there'll be an audience of liberals, uh, blue liberals, who are are not overly pleased about all of this. And it gives the conservatives some time, a little bit more time than they had to heal what they're going to have to heal after this leadership race, because it isn't pretty. Zane, um, just you, your sense of the shifting political landscape, and, and, and I know we're talking about Bitcoin because of Pierre Pauly ever wants to, to mm-hmm. make this the crypto uh, capital of the world. And, 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 and by the way, that would allow us, and we could talk about it, his, his words, to opt out of inflation. If we could opt out of it, that would be yeah, great. Yeah. I, I, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I, I'd love to opt out of inflation. I don't think that's possible. But Zane, what's your take on all this? Uh, would it be crazy if I say that in the short term, this is a win-win-win for three guys named Justin, Jagmeet, and Pierre? Like, this is a legacy-defining thing for, for Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh. Mm-hmm. I, I could see both of them perhaps... Not not caring about the party, but caring perhaps about what they personally want more and how they'll be remembered in the confines of Canadian politics as their first priority here. And and I think to that point, the glue that holds this together, I suspect, and I don't have inside intel on this, is that these gents have probably agreed on three budgets, agreed on the scope and the scale. And I think we're going to see coming up very shortly uh, next Thursday what that looks like as the first iteration of. And I think for Pierre Polyevra, this helps him majorly in the sense that he's the one of the the candidates who has a seat 
in the House. So waiting a couple of years, no issue for him. He also, the biggest sort of thing that, that is a question mark for Pierre Polyevre is, is his populist rhetoric able to win government? Well, now he doesn't need to win it immediately. So people can vote with the energy, the excitement, the numbers that he brings mm -hmm. to this leadership race and not necessarily have to care about government because we'll give him time to figure it out. We'll let him expand the tent. We'll get our influence in there, all that sort of stuff. So mm. I think for the three guys, it's a win. For the parties themselves, I think that's the big question mark. And I think that's where you see loyalists about the liberals, the NDPs, and even the conservatives saying, what the heck is happening here? But for the three, what if I can call them leaders slash one front runner, this could be really good news. Yeah. Uh, Zane, you're, you're perfect for politics. Politics is about choices. You chose three winners and then you used a double negative. So three <laughs> positives. That are, they're not, not. You are welcome. You are welcome. Right. It's like they are not, well, uh, not uh, happy. Uh, okay, Tom. <laughs> I'll throw one uh, conservative candidate in there. One of the leadership candidates is Jean Charest. And I don't think he was banking on a three and a half year wait. He's exactly. not in the House. Yeah. Uh, he'd be wandering the, the halls of, of Parliament like Banquo's ghost for three years, if ever he did win the leadership. And he was in. He was throwing in his lot with the average 18-month length of a minority government, saying, look, hey, you know, I'm making tons of money uh, on boards of directors and in a big law firm, but you know what? I'm going to take a roll of the dice here because I've always wanted to be the Prime Minister of Canada. And opalai, you know, he's going to be 64 in June. He'll be in his 68th year by the time that election rolls around. That's not what he was counting on. No, but luckily, Joe Biden, you could be 296 <laughs> now, and it's okay. Yeah, but I do think you're right. I think the runway probably got uh, super long. Uh, Tim, the liberals have a budget coming on um, April 7th. And, of course, knowing these liberals, I'm sure it'll be one of great restraint and cuts. I'm just yeah, kidding. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, what are you looking for in that? Even after yesterday, um, I mean, there's big ticket items, massive ticket items. They've got the NDP deal now that they've got other, you know, they've got, they got to pay for, you know, health care, dental care, pharma care. They've got to pay for now $9 billion on the green issue. They've got the child care issue. They've got the $40 billion settlement with indigenous uh, lead, uh, groups. Like, there's a lot of money out there. W what are you expecting to see? What's he actually saying no to, and how do they stagger that out? Because um, don't forget, you forgot the 2% GDP increase, uh, Evan. I mean, there's another $9 billion there. Um, so what is going to be prioritized in, in the immediate term? Because, again, going back to that deal, if you think you can get things done, you want to get them done early. So what, what are the items they want to get done early to get that legacy piece that Zane was talking about uh, for Trudeau and uh, perhaps for Mr. Singh himself? And what gets delayed? Where's long-term care and all of that? will be something I'll be looking for, even though it's spoken about in the deal. And how is this all going to get paid for? What are the unpopular taxation measures that are going to come to the fore? Because there's certainly going to be some requirement to generate new revenue there. So who will say no, and to right. what will they actually say no to? Well, but, but his name is Justin True. No, no, it's Justin True. Oh, let's do that again. Like, he's never said no to anything, Zane. Is that is that even an option? Tim's frame is right, but your point is exactly the one I was going to make, which is, are we sure there's going to be stuff left out? Like, now that this deal is in place, are we sure right. that for a guy who's perhaps chasing long-term legacy with the cloud cover of COVID and potentially a war to say, we need systemic remake of this country, is, there, is, is housing going to be left out? Is reconciliation going to be left out? Is spending in a significant way on, on a variety of things going to be left out? I think we're going to see some 
jaw-dropping numbers, Evan. I think we're going to see numbers that are going to be a gift for the conservatives. Unfortunately for them, they don't get to go to the polls anytime soon. But if we look at this agreement as day zero last week, uh, I believe it was last week, who knows? It feels like it was years ago, but day zero of that agreement, this is the first time and you do the hard stuff, the perhaps difficult stuff, perhaps the unpopular stuff early, I think very little is going to be left out and I expect jaw-dropping numbers to be seen next Thursday. Yeah, fiscal mm-hmm. guardrails, I don't know what they mean by that. Um, um, Tom, I want you to weigh in, but I want to take a break. We're about uh, 45 seconds away from a break. I want Tom to weigh in on what we're going to see because this is a big spending budget. Uh, they're going to spend on defense now. They're, they know they're going to spend on housing. They're going to spend on climate. Uh, and now they've got the deal with the NDP. So that's not exactly, this does not spell restraint. But I also want to ask you this. Uh, if you look at what the Liberals have done, National Child Care Program, the Compensation for First Nations Children, $40 billion, um, price on carbon, the deal with the NDP, legalizing cannabis, the climate plan, the CERB, you name it. Is this the most transformational government in a generation, but is the cost worth it? Let's try to add up the numbers. Next. Helping you through these unique times, this is The Evan Solomon Show. We are back inside the war room with uh, Zane Velji, our political campaign strategist at Northweather, Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst, former NDP leader, and Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies. All right. I think, Tom, I left you dangling there. You wanted to talk about budget <laughs> April 7th. That makes What's me your... a dangling participant. Yeah. Yeah. A dangling participant. I, 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 I like that. I like budget, that. But some. Something coming in right after the budget. So on the budget, the one little bit that I would keep an eye on is if the Liberals don't start trying to chip away at the full uh, capital gains exemption when you sell your Mm. principal residence. There's been some talk of that over the years, and it would be interesting to see if they start crab walking over to it ever so gently. With regard to the the NDP deal, a couple of very interesting things that happened. So this week, everybody knew it was coming. Stephen Gilbo comes out with this big plan. $9 $9 billion, reduce greenhouse gases, lots of specifics, contrary to the other eight plans in 25 years that have all failed. But the interesting part for me is going to come the week after the budget. So next Thursday, we get the budget. NDP is going to vote for it. And just after the budget speeches and the budget votes have taken place, the Liberals will announce their decision on Beijunau. We've talked about this yep. before. This is more in Tim's neck of the woods. It's mm. uh, 500 kilometers or so northeast of St. John's of Newfoundland Labrador. Huge petroleum offshore project, $15 billion, thousands of jobs, big investment by the Norwegian state oil company up there. And I keep getting it through the ONGs and through Ottawa that cabinet's going to approve this thing. So you can just imagine being Jagmeet Singh. You went after Trudeau hard during the campaign. You said you haven't gotten it done. The plan that was announced by Gilbo yesterday goes straight into the wastebasket if they approve Bejunal. So I'm going to really be keeping my eye on that one because that could be a very embarrassing moment for the NDP after signing this deal and after voting for Mm, the budget. Interesting. Tim, you want to weigh in? 
Well, I, I may know or not know a certain big peacock in Newfoundland and Labrador who, when putting out his tail, said, before you look at all the splendor that could be Beta Noir, a certain emissions plan has to come in first. And lo and behold, that peacock was right. Uh, from the Newfoundland and Labrador perspective of, of Beta Nord, it is being positioned, and Tom would have lived through this when he was the NDP leader, as, as the savior of the current Newfoundland economy as much necessary. There are six Liberal MPs there who have all come out in support of Bay de Nord. Um, and, and equally, I've heard from some of the NGOs that Tom probably has saying, oh, we can't believe Gibo would do this. It, it It is going to be massive one way or yes. the other. And it gets that oil plan, the oil and gas plan, or the environmental re- emissions reductions plan, Evan, because there is this confusing contrast that exists. You got it out of Gibo when you interviewed him. On the one hand, oil production will be going up. On the other hand, there are those things, code red for humanity. How do we find our feet in there? Well, the first test is uh, is Beta Nord. Last point I'd make, and Zane will know this in Alberta, the oil industry doesn't know what to believe anymore. Uh, they heard Jonathan Wilkinson last week saying 200,000 new barrels of oil a day, 100,000 bar- equivalent, 100,000 barrels of, uh, of natural gas. Should we sink money in or not sink money in? They'll all be looking at Beta Nord to see what the tea leaves in our yeah. project. And, and, and Zane William, by the way, if, in case people listening say, what the hell are they talking about? Bay de Nord is this, it's been around, what, for eight years they discovered this, and they expect to produce oil there, 300 million barrels of oil there by 2025, if it's approved. Big time for the Newfoundland Labrador economy, but what about the environment? Zane, what does it tell you? Uh, it tells me that this is a liberal government that clearly is... <laughs> taken advantage of its deal already <laughs> that this is a yeah you know what i could have just stopped that this is a you liberal government you could have, have you all understood have. it you could have moved on but no it's, that was it's, the line they, yeah there you go uh listen they're already this is this is what i find interesting so i'll get to the projects in alberta in a second but i find the politics of here perhaps even more fascinating because guess what the the strategic downside for the ndp already seems to be present here in this agreement because exactly thus far thus far the plan is a copy and paste of the Liberal platform with one small tweak on net zero. And guess who's getting blamed for that? The NDP, because they didn't do anything on income inequality related to climate. They didn't add any of their own flavor. What happened to pulling this further to the to the left? What happened to the projects that we were just discussing? What happened to oh, why is it only 42 percent of 2005 levels by 2030 for oil production, which effectively impacts Alberta significantly? Why is it not lower? So the fact is on the politics one of the threads that we've been talking about over the last week that the NDP gets uh, gets really little credit uh, for doing the good and gets all the blame, I think that narrative specifically on this starts to be playing out and could have even be more impressed if Alberta's pushback, which includes, by the way, NDP leader Rachel Notley pushing back against the federal government. Most people would yeah. think that her and Trudeau are tied at the hips. Certainly not. Pushback aggressively yesterday. If that pushback continues, that actually creates real complications with your cousins who have not done enough to push this climate plan even further left, i.e. the NDP. Further left, which is remarkable. I mean, you think, you know, 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. this was the Mm -hmm. government. I mean, like, let's just look at this, because I want to know the the cost-benefit analysis of Trudeau. Whatever people say say about Justin Trudeau, the guy has now, and he'll be in power 8, 9, 10 years at the end, 
got the CERB, the National Child Care Program, the $40 yep. billion dollar agreement to compensate First Nations children harmed by the underfunded child welfare system. He's got the national price on carbon, the climate plan to cut emissions, legalizing pot, legalizing medical assistance in dying, you know, gender equality in cabinet. Um, he got a s- extension of CPP. There's a health care deal. He bought, you know, he's he's buying uh, the, the F-35 jets finally. Like, Tom, these are big transformational governments. And yet yes. the cost, he may leave us with record-breaking deficit. So, is <laughs> oh, it, so detail, details, details. Well, okay, go but ahead. If you if you were making that list prior to the fall election, you you know, talk to your friends. Okay, what's Trudeau done during his first six years? Because, you know, he'd done a full four-year mandate plus two. What's he done? And the answer would be, well, he legalized pot. And then you'd say, and then what? So almost everything you just named is part of the legacy, his succession that he's really obsessing about now. He knows that he's going to be replaced by Christia Freeland or Mark Carney, but he doesn't look like he's there for the long run. So he wants to have a list as long as the one that you just read out. Mm. The child care thing is brilliant. I hate to say it because I don't like bringing it to myself, but in 2015, that was the cornerstone of the NDP's campaign. And the Liberals would send out Kathleen Wynne's ministers to attack our proposal for childcare. And so there you go. Mr. Trudeau's got that. And I couldn't be happier for families across the country that we're going to finally have good quality, affordable childcare. And Trudeau is going to get well-deserved credit for it because he's pushed the thing through. So on, if you look at your list, he's thinking legacy. He wants to get this done and cost be damned because the person who's got to put together, you might notice the person who's actually going to have to read those numbers next week is the very same Christia Freeland. And I can just imagine him tenting his fingers as he's watching this, a certain Mark Carney saying, yes, my sweetie, go ahead, spend all that money, and then I'll be seen as the liberal who actually knows how to count. Well, it's true, he swipes some ideas, but but as you know, uh, Tim, political kleptomania has been part of the liberal arsenal for a thousand years. But but can they justify the cost? Like, in the end, it's going to be, yes, we're transformational. Is it worth the cost? God, I miss the old days when legacy tours were Brian Mulroney boar hunting with uh, with Boris Yeltsin. Who can who can forget those great pictures? Justin Trudeau's using more ammunition, and they're hell of a lot more expensive. I think uh, just adding off of Tom's point, uh, legacy doesn't matter uh, if 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 your point is you're simply pursuing legacy. Mr. Trudeau is demonstrating so far he's not as concerned about the future electoral prospects in the short term of his party. And Kashir Freeland, Mark. Kearney, Francois Philippe Champagne, and many centrist blue liberals are not going to be happy to have to pick up the pieces if all of those things get done. Zane, um, despite the fact that I can tell you're envious of that wonderful metaphor of Tim's, go oh, ahead. You do, do your ba- I mean, you wanted that boar hunting thing, but you missed it. Go ahead. <laughs> Here's what I'll say very quickly. I'd say that legacy is not just ambition here. It's also implementation. And if I have a worry yeah. inside the liberal government, It's their inability to implement. Legacy will be defined for Trudeau, not the day he leaves, but perhaps a half a decade, a decade later. I would be squarely focused on who's the COO, who's the next in line that actually ensures you land the plane, because only then can the cost be justified, I would say. Yeah, do you remember they used to talk about this word deliverology? They buried that yeah. word a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe maybe it's just lost in the mail. Maybe it just hasn't arrived. <laughs> no, uh, in fact, what they, they, had, they had counted on having a very high percentage yeah. of, of things that they had accomplished. But they accomplished the small things. They didn't get any of the big right. ones done, like climate change. But that's uh, Tom, Tom, Tim, Zane, we're, we're hitting a break. God, I love you guys. Thank you. Uh, we got to take a break. Lots more to come. 
From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program. Time for your intervention. Do you think new legislation that will be introduced by a senator called the Jane Goodall Act and it's been actually, it was introduced on the March 22nd, uh, in, originally introduced about a couple of years ago, which will basically offer protections for captive tigers and lions, big cats, bears, wolves, seals, sea lions, walruses, monkeys, dangerous reptiles, crocs, pythons, and phase out elephant activity, or sorry, elephant captivity in Canada. So you won't be able to see, go to a roadside zoo and see apes or elephants, or great apes. And it will ban the importation of other hunting trophies like ivory. Several zoos are in support of the bill, like the Toronto Zoo, the Calgary Zoo, the Granbury Zoo, the Montreal Biodome. But organizations that own tigers or cheetahs need a permit. What do you think? Does this legislation go too far? Do you think... You should ban zoos from keeping, I don't know, elephants in captivity. Should zoos have giraffes and elephants and zebras? 1-855-633-1010 or 7-1010. 1-855-633-1010 or 7-1010. I want to play you a clip from Paul Grossier, the CEO of the Granby Zoo in Quebec. He agrees with the legislation. They actually have three elephants in captivity, but here's what they say. It's better if we move all the elephants at the same place, I would say, in sanctuaries and stuff, in places like that where they will get bigger place. It will get easier, you know, to breed them instead of having them diluted in different institutions. But others like Jean-Pierre Ranger of the Park Safari in Quebec say this is way too far. Listen to this. Giraffes in certain areas of Africa have no place to go. The bill goes too far. When it says you can no longer import elephants, giraffes, zebras, tigers, lions, in order to keep the genetic pool at a maximum capacity to ensure reproduction of animals that are in good health, we have to exchange animals with Asia, Europe, Africa, the United States. Some zoos, Calgary Zoo, Toronto Zoo, Granbury Zoo, Assiniboine Park Zoo, Biodome, are exempt from the captivity ban because they're animal care organizations. Some say, look, what should you be able to take your kid to the zoo and see an elephant? What's your take on that? What about African lion safari, someone asked? It'd be gone. It's gone. As I understood it, African lion safari would no longer essentially be operated. Isn't that what you understand? Release all circus elephants and others, someone says. Don't zoos keep some animals from becoming extinct? Yeah, they're the care ones, but very few of them. 1-855-633-1010 or 7-1010. So if the Jane Goodall Act were to pass, could you go to a zoo and see an elephant? Probably not. Could you import all these exotic animals? Be a lot more difficult to do. A lot more difficult to get wild animals out to these roadside zoos. A lot more difficult to get 
you know, giraffes and monkeys. I, I remember taking my kids to these things, and, and I was always torn because it's kind of gross. But it's also kind of inspirational and educational. They loved seeing them. Do you take your kids to the zoo? Did you like going for, to the zoo? one 855 or 71010? It's, it's really a tricky question. Like, I, I don't know if any of you out there listening want to go to the zoo or if the government said, you know what? You, you, you can go to the zoo, but you can't see a tiger. You can't see a lion. You can't see a cheetah. You can't see an elephant. You can't see a giraffe. You can't see a zebra. Well, you're not going to the zoo. Now, some of these zoos seem to suggest that they have exemptions. And if that's the case, if all we're doing is raising the standard that you have to have a huge pen, maybe that's different. Like the Toronto Zoo, the Montreal Biodome. But what's the criteria? Hi, Evan, I love the topic. I think the only people who enjoy these parks and zoos and stuff are the younger generations. It's pretty much because they don't have time when they're older and they get smarter and realize, I don't want to look at a bunch of sad animals trapped in cages. Evan, it's about time. Why do we need these poor animals in an unnatural habitat? Let me ask this question. If I thought there were habitats all over the world that were protected, but are these animals, aren't they virtually, some of them endangered? Because their own natural habitats are seriously imperiled. I mean, if there was a proven reproductive element, would that help? Evan, ban them all. It's far overdue. Keep these places shut down. Keeping animals in captivity is so cruel. When you see these animals at the fence, they're miserable. The very fact that they're there in the first place is abusive. All animals and whales and dolphins should be where they belong. Richard, what's up? Good afternoon, Evan. Um, you make some great points. I'm a 61-year-old guy, so I've been to the zoo from when I was a little boy and taken my children, and zoos have evolved. Unfortunately, um, the law doesn't make sense to talk about putting them all in one place because if you get a disease, then you knock them all out in one shot. But the responsibility we have now to the animals is because of what we've done to their habitat. If we want to keep animals around... We need to have modernized zoos the way they're working now, which is they exchange DNA, they're exchanging semen, they move animals from different parks to different parks to help them breed in captivity. Um, Yes, in some respects it's very sad, but I think it would be a sadder world if we didn't have them and we start making up for all the mistakes we've made in the 20th century destroying their habitat. Um, it's a very tough issue. It's not a disnified uh, question where all the animals are happy, but it's something that we have to do uh, towards mm. a long-term solution, I think. Darn good call, Richard. I appreciate the call. Thanks. Call again. Um, I, Richard makes great calls. Lots of people are, 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 are in on this. There's the band, f- f- and then there's people like Jake who said, Evan, I went to African Lion Safari last summer. I stood near the elephants for half an hour. I was so amazed. It was great. I want to take my kids one day to see this. So he loved it. Uh, Terry, what's your call? 
I am so glad we're having this conversation, Evan, because I have been, I, I'm 60, I've been to zoos, I took my children, I have not taken my grandchildren because I really think it's time, it's time for them to go. Animals in captivity is so brutally cruel. I can't, I couldn't even go now because I think I'd cry. I, and there's lots of ways to teach children about animals through video, through books. You don't have to stand beside an elephant to learn about an elephant. Like, you just don't. So Can I ask you a question about cruelty? So, so I get this. Believe me, I understand. I, I'm asking you not to try to trap you, but to try to legitimately ask mm-hmm. you. Like, I eat meat, right? I don't know if you do, right? I, do. I wear Okay, I eat meat. I, I, I wear leather. Like, we treat animals as products all the time by the millions, by the tens of millions, chickens, cows, you name it. And yet we say, oh, we can't have an elephant who's... Probably treat, I'm not saying they're not as happy in the, they would be much happier in the wild, but there they are in the Toronto Zoo, they're treated well, they're being studied, they're inspiring. Like, I don't understand how on one hand we're okay to treat animals as food and products, and yet on the other hand we're like, we can't put them in captivity, a couple of them in the zoo. What's the difference? I hear, I hear your point, and it's a very good one, because I struggle with that as well. And, and I have been considering going to a vegetarian type of diet for those reasons. I haven't done it, but I know I, that is a very valid point. But I also think, honestly, my personal opinion is if I was to be in, had to be in jail for the rest of my life, I'd rather be dead. Like, those animals, I think looking yeah. at them makes it, it more real and sad. Like, looking into those eyes, you can see the sadness in their eyes. Yeah. Uh, listen, Terry, I, 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 all of you are saying the same. I'm struggling with this one, too. This is a tricky one. Um, we'll have this conversation more as I'm going to follow this legislation. But, but Terry just said something. Looking at their eyes. Speaking of that, we're going to follow a family whose three children are about to go blind and they're traveling the world to see. Sorting through the changes, here's Evan Solomon. Welcome back to the program. How do you educate your kids? Well, already that's the great challenge of a parent. You have two obligations as a parent, I always say. Keep your kids safe and give them a good education. But for Edith LeMay, a Quebec woman, she she and her husband have a different issue. they got four kids, but... Three of her children have a rare genetic condition, which will cause them to lose their vision over time. So they decided before their kids lose the ability to see, they're going to see the world. And they're on a one-year-long worldwide trip. They're in Namibia right now on a family trip. And she joins us now. Edith LeMay, thank you for being here. Hi. Nice to be with you. Tell me what, what, you've got four kids. Tell me what, what condition three of your kids have? They have a condition called retinitis pigmentosa, which will cause uh, them to lose their vision over time. So your three of your kids will go blind and there's no cure for retinitis pigmentosa? Nope, not yet. There's none that, that we know of. And how fast will this happen? Actually, we don't know. Um, we know... Now we can tell that it's not going to go fast, but uh, we really don't know. They, we expect them to be completely blind by midlife, but uh, they're going to slowly lose their field of vision. 
have they got and right now? Like, how old are your kids now that are that are uh, living with this condition? Um, Mia's eleven. The Colin is six, and the last one is four. And have they already seen a, a loss of sight? They they lost their night vision, so they go completely blind really quickly when the, when we lose light. And uh, my oldest, Mia, has a sensitivity to bright light. So in the sun, she really needs to have a hat and cover her eyes because it makes her eyes um, water a lot. And then how, just, just before we get to this extraordinary way you're dealing with this, this is the rare genetic condition. So, so, so ha- was there anyone else in your family or your husband's family who had ever uh, had this issue? Not at all. I never even heard of that um, that disease before. So it's really a, we had like both me and my husband have a defective gene that we didn't know about, but combined in our ch- child, it, it caused a disease. So and when you first and, and even, out of, yep, when you we first heard about it, to, <laughs> oh, sorry, you go ahead, you go ahead. We're, you, I know you're in Namibia. So, We've got a small delay. You go yeah. ahead. So we had a chance out of four for our kids to get the disease, and we actually got three out of four. And, and when you found this out, like, how did you, uh, how did you and your husband decide to deal with this? Well, uh, for me, I'm really someone who is looking for a solution, and I need action. And that's the thing I found fairly hard with that disease is that there's nothing to do. They just tell you, okay, here's the disease, and your kids are going to go blind. And that's all we can do about it. So I wanted a solution. I wanted something to to do. And that's how the trip came. So tell me what about this trip? What is the solution here? What are you doing? Um, Actually, I want to to fill their visual memories. Because when they'll go blind, I want them to have nice memories, landscape. I want them to know what an elephant looks like in real life. Uh, So I want that, that them to have that in their memory. So that's why we traveling the world to show them the beauty of the world. It's amazing. So tell me where, so, so you've, are, are the kids out of school or are they taking online courses? Uh, we, I, I teach them. We do a homeschool. So you're homeschooling the kids. Tell me where you're going around the world to give them, as you say, this, these permanent visual memories. Um, actually, we don't know. Uh, this trip's been planned. We, we were supposed to leave in uh, July 2020, and for two years it's been postponed. And we were actually supposed to start with the Trans-Siberian through Russia. So that's kind of out of question. So we had to redo the itinerary so many times because of the pandemic, uh, we just decided to improvise. So right now we're doing Africa, we're doing Namibia, Zambia, and then um, Tanzania. After that, we're not sure where we're going to go. And and you're going, and what, are you taking the kids on like a safari? Uh, yes, yes, we're trying, but we're in a few weeks right now, we're doing more in Namibia, more the desert part of Namibia, and we're going to end up with a safari in Etosha Park. And of course, in Tanzania, we'll have a, a few safari as well. That's so cool. So, so, and do your kids know, like, are they, like, we know this is going to happen to us. I mean, they're pretty young. Uh, do they get a sense that what they're seeing now is, is there, you're there for a reason? 
Yes. Well, the oldest is old enough. She perfectly understands what, what's, what's her disease and what's going to happen to her. And so she fully enjoyed the trip, and she knows it's a once-in-a-lifetime change chance to do that. Uh, for the youngest one, I think they're just they're just living d- day by day, so they don't really realize. They're just excited to be mm. where they are. Doesn't do they, matter where. Are, are you prepa- How do you prepare kids for blindness? Like, do you, do you like how do you do that? Well, that's that's a good question, and that um, a thing that I really want my kids to get is to be resilient, to be able to. Um, to see obstacles as challenges, not as something that will stop them. And, and I think the trip is going to help them do that. And throughout the trip, I want to teach them that um, when it's hard, there's always a solution. Because on their trip, yes, it's fun. We see nice things. But also, um, we're going to get tired. We're going to get hungry, frustrated. And I want them to learn that when it's hard, there's always a solution, and there's it's always better after. I mean, you, first of all, you you and your husband Sebastian, you, your approach is so beautiful, and I love that you're going around the world and seeing flamingos and and beautiful <laughs> things. But do you ever just? It must be. It must be your parent. Do, do you ever just? Is it just hard sometimes to realize what what awaits your kids? Um, it is, it, well, it was at first, I would say it was why it was hard to accept, but I think once you accept it, once you accept that, okay, that's their path, that's going to await them. But, um, I want to see, I I'm deep inside. I know they're going to be able to go through those challenges. I know it won't be easy, but I know I know the challenge that they're going to face and everybody's going to face challenges in their life. So I think I know what's in front. So it's easier in some ways. You're amazing. Uh, Can you tell your, your, your husband, Sebastian, Edith LeMay, uh, you're great. I love what you're doing with your kids just in general. It's inspirational. I know they've got a huge challenge ahead, but you're preparing them. Um, three of your four kids are going to lose their sight, but they're not going to lose their heart or their, their vision of the world. And, and Ida, thank you. Uh, and enjoy every moment with your kids on this world tour. Thank you very much. It was nice. What a pleasure. I, I, I hope we get to check in with you guys again, the LeMay Pelche family. Oh, man, folks, what do you make of that? How beautiful is that? How, I don't know what to say. People are amazing. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on Power Play tonight at 5, and we'll speak again tomorrow.